3: Welcome back to the Curbsiders. I'm Dr. Matthew Watto here with my great friend, Dr. Paul Nelson-Williams. Paul, how are you doing tonight?
1: Matt, I'm so good. How are you doing?
3: I'm good, Paul. It's, you know, it's a weeknight. It's late (laughs) at night. We're recording podcasts. What else would we be doing with our lives?
1: Haven't eaten dinner yet. Yeah, no, it's perfect. This is exactly where I'd want to be.
3: On tonight's show, you're about to hear something we recorded in person, Paul, at sgym.com. 2022 with four great guests, and this was written and produced by the fantastic Dr. Nora Plaut Toronto. Paul, before we tell them about our great guests, what is it that we do on the Curbsiders?
1: Thank you so much for asking. I feel like I haven't said this in a while. We are the internal medicine podcast. We use expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice changing knowledge. And we have four experts with us uh, for this. I mean, our, our cup runneth over an embarrassment of riches. Uh, we have Stefan Curtis, we had Heman a. Lavender, we had Kenneth Morford and Catherine Mullins all sort of talk about the, uh, a little bit greater detail, of the things they presented here at SGIM 2022 in terms of their updates to addiction medicine. So we covered the gamut of, of addiction, which uh, a lot of great and high yield topics.
3: Yeah. We- We start off with some opioids, some alcohol use disorder, we go into a potpourri, at which point we talk about some methamphetamines, Paul, end up talking about some advocacy related to opioids and really great stuff. This was a very inspiring group, so without further ado, let's get on to it. To start us off here, Nora, why don't you give us a case from Cashlack, which is a, it's a real place in our hearts. Definitely. And, uh, also my grandmother's maiden name, which you told me that we should say more often on the show.
4: Right. Right. Cashlack. Yeah. It rolls off. It's the a, day, it's you know? Cashlack.
3: Yeah. Spelled with a K Ks, <laughs> And it's, it just happens to be a great pun, which really goes well for the show.
4: So we have the first case. This is Mike. He's 64, has hypertension, hyperlipidemia, and chronic back pain. He's on MS-Contin, 45 twice daily. He's also on Resuvastatin and lisinopril. You're his new PCP, and he states he wants to get his cholesterol checked, and then he also happens to need a refill of all of his meds. Um, he's not quite out of his MS-Contin, but he will be in one week. So the first question, uh, which we'll throw to, throw to you, Kenny, is uh, should we be tapering opioids in long-term opioid patients? And what are the risks of that? And if you wouldn't mind, since we haven't actually introduced you yet, just give us give us a one-liner of kind of where you're at um, and what you do.
5: Sure. Um, so I'm Kenny Morford. I I guess for the whole one-liner. I'm a 38-year-old um, addiction medicine physician and general internist um, at Yale. I love cats, but I'm allergic to them, so I have <laughs> so I have pet fish. <laughs> but to, to this question, you know, for this case, it's a patient that I've never seen before. So, you know, I recognize that he's on long-term opioid therapy. At this point, I think the most important thing is for me to take a uh, complete history and physical. And I don't really want to change too much with the opioids. Um, I think that's important for, you know, it's good to hear that he has some, he still has some of his old prescription, so he's not going to run out right away. I'm concerned about things like him going into withdrawal. And if he were to run out, I would probably give him at least a week bridge prescription at the current dose until I can kind of get to know him better.
1: I'm not sure if you listen to the show often. One didactic technique we really like is Matt will frame an egregious question to me that is clearly wrong <laughs> and it, it gives you a chance to correct. So is our goal not to taper this patient as
5: aggressively and quickly as possible because all opioids are bad and that's really the end point that we should be getting at? Yes, that's exactly right. <laughs> um, and and you know, so one of the things, th- this study that came out last year showed that for patients who are on you know, what they considered stably high doses of opioids, so that was any opioid prescription that was greater than 50 morphine milligram equivalents a day, um, if those opioids partake tapered at greater than 15% of their baseline daily dose, that those patients were more likely to have an overdose or a mental health crisis, and that could be depression, anxiety, or suicide attempt in the following 12 months. Um, so, you know, this was... A correlational type of finding, but that's a serious risk. And so we want to remember that rapidly tapering anybody's opioids could result in that sort of a consequence. Yeah. And to
3: tie this back to the first time we met Stefan and we talked about this, you were already like, I don't think we had any data. It was just like, you're like, people are emailing me that this is happening. And we all believed it was probably true that folks, because the CDC put out this guideline that was just recommending you just slashing doses and people, the people prescribing were scared for their their licenses. So they were slashing doses in an, in a way that they didn't know how, cause they had never been trained how. So How should we do this responsibly? Like, what is a 15% is bad. What's a better pace to do it?
5: You know, the way, at least in this study, they defined uh, kind of lower or slower tapers as being less than a 10% decrease from baseline, you know, each month, essentially. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think that there's an, a perfect answer to this. I think what's most important is that this has to be a shared decision-making type of conversation with the patient. We have to figure out where they're at. Also figure out, like, why do we want to taper the opioids, mm-hmm. right? And what goes into that is, um, are we worried that this person is having side effects or have they developed an opioid use disorder? That's an opportunity to screen for an opioid use disorder. Um, we should be doing all those things as we, you know, get to know the patient better before we make any decisions on the opioids themselves.
2: In this retrospective paper that was published last year by Agnoli, any dose reduction, any reduction was associated with a statistically higher risk of the adverse event. Of course it is retrospective and it could be that the reductions demarcate or indicate some other risks in the individual. But right now I think the unanswered question is whether dose reductions in people who are currently stable confer any safety benefit at all, or do they actually just confer risk? And that means that you could justify them either because the individual is actually not doing well, they're suffering from the medication in some respect, or they have something that has triggered a higher level of concern. But the general notion that, gosh, if you're above this dose, I should bring it down uh, to make you healthier, just as I should give a statin drug to somebody else who's at high cardiovascular risk... That now remains very clearly not proven.
3: I think we can all probably think of patients that, Paul, you have patients that are on 60, 80 of oxycodone or something, maybe, probably you didn't start it, but probably they've been on it for a while. I've inherited some patients in my career that have been on higher doses and they they just refill it on the regular, that there's no, they don't seem to be suffering from any sort of opiate juice disorder and tapering those people. I think that's the type of patient we're talking about where there's a real chance to do harm yeah, no, right.
1: I, I think we're just beating a dead horse at this point. If you have clinical stability and they're not having adverse outcomes from it, I'm not sure what the hurry is. And I think just sort of it's important to assess what your goal is with the dose reduction.
3: And what we've learned in the past is I think the patient, how they're feeling, is gonna tell you how quickly you can go. So 10% is just like a maybe a starting point, but then they'll let you know if if you can go quicker than that or not. And they'll you just need to be in close contact with them, it sounds like.
5: Exactly. And, you know, one thing I want to emphasize is that the reason we as addiction medicine physicians get so worried about this is that the drug supply has changed so much that when we talk about an overdose now, you know, there used to be time to do something about it. Like if my patient returned to heroin use or, you know, I would see them back in the office, we'd have a discussion, maybe I could... This is not about long-term opioid therapy, but if they were on something like buprenorphine, naloxone, I would titrate the dose. Now with so much fentanyl contamination in the drug supply, people use once and then they have a fatal overdose. So I think the risk here is very significant where if we were to taper someone's opioids too quickly, they start to experience withdrawal or worsening pain. They obtain some non-medical opioid that contains fentanyl. That could be it. And so that is the worst possible outcome.
3: This episode is sponsored by Birch. And curbsiders, I love my Birch mattress. Because my previous mattress, it just wasn't cutting it for me. As I've said, sometimes I struggle with sleep because I got a lot on my mind. I'm an anxious person. So I need to do everything I can to make sure I'm getting high-quality sleep. And Birch has been working for me because it's a high-quality, comfortable mattress. And I'm just loving it. Birch makes organic mattresses right here in America. And they ship them straight to your door with no contact delivery. And they're fun to open. It's one of those mattresses that's rolled up. You cut up, you cut the plastic, and it opens up right in front of you. It's magic. You can sleep on it right away. Birch has free returns and a 100-night sleep trial, so you don't have to worry about not liking it because you can send it back. But guess what? You're going to love it. And this thing's going to last for a long time. It has a 25-year warranty. And who knows if I'll even be alive in 25 years, so I might have this thing for the rest of my life. So if you're looking for a new mattress, visit birchliving.com curb. Right now, Birch is giving $200 off all mattresses and two free eco-rest pillows at birchliving.com slash curb. That's $200 off all mattress orders and two free eco-rest pillows at birchliving.com slash curb. We're going to move on to
4: buprenorphine and what to do with it during surgery. So we have a lady, Molly, she's 67. She has a severe multiple joint OA, as well as opioid use disorder. She comes in after a mechanical fall with a displaced fibula fracture. What should we be doing?
5: Actually, this is where we've really changed a lot in kind of our practice. And I think that it's taken some time for the evidence to catch up to what we're doing clinically. Um, And the evidence, quite frankly, isn't all there yet but what we see is that it is always better to continue the buprenorphine, naloxone, for surgeries, for acute injuries. There's a number of strategies we can do to help treat the pain um, perioperatively or whatever it might be. We can split the dose of the buprenorphine so we can maximize the analgesic properties of that medication by giving it three times a day. And the other thing is just give full opioid agonists on top Mm -hmm. of it. You know, when we were first learning about buprenorphine and and its partial agonism, I think we were all taught that like, oh, it blocks the opioid receptor. Nothing's going to happen. You can give a ton of oxycodone and the person's not going to have any benefit from it. But that's really not the case. Um, And, you know, I think there's some research kind of looking into that. But we do know that our patients do get a lot of benefit from having full opioids on top and it does help their pain. Um, So that is our approach now.
3: And I think if you're talking about someone with a use disorder, it's such a, buprenorphine is a long acting medication. So they're, they're keeping levels in their system and it's easier to treat if it's easier to give on top of that, rather than just like you totally take them off everything. And now you're just giving them short acting. I just, it just hasn't worked well in my experience. So I was so glad when I, the past few years, this started to become the practice pattern.
5: I felt the same way. I felt like it was like permission <laughs> to make <laughs> it easier for us. I mean, it's always scary to take somebody off of buprenorphine and then think about like, what am I going to do? Like, how long are they going to have mm-hmm. this pain? They're going to be on all these full a- opioid agonists. When do we get it back on? Um, so now we just keep it on with the understanding that we will probably need higher doses of that full opioid agonist because they will have some blockade from, from the bup on the opioid receptor. Um, but that's fine. They're monitored. We can make it safe, um, and we can treat their pain without disrupting their treatment of OUD. Just because in my limited experience,
1: the surgeons are so grateful to have the conversation. Like, they're almost looking for your blessing. I'm like, yes, please go ahead and continue the medication. And yes, if you need philaginous therapy, go to town. They're like, oh, thank God. Like, they just, I think that they're just a little bit nervous around the medication they don't have a lot of comfort with. So just even having the conversation, the discussion goes a long way to sort
5: of setting your patient up for success. Yeah, I completely agree. That's-
4: Is there any nuance to, like, the day of surgery, what we should be doing?
5: We still give it the day of surgery. Okay. Yep, and we keep it at the same dose. I am um, so that there is some institutional variability with mm-hmm. that. Some places say they go down on the dose to twelve milligrams. Other, you know, other people still think that you should hold it. But now, what we're seeing with emerging recommendations, there is this big one last year that came out in um, BMJ Anesthesia and Pain, I believe, <laughs> where. It had multiple national societies, so pain medicine, um, anesthesia, addiction medicine, pharmacy. And they said, do not hold the buprenorphine perioperatively and even consider starting it for somebody who's not receiving it.
3: That's great. That's great. I think we should move on because we, we have so much great stuff to get to from everybody here. And uh, I actually, the last thing I should say, we Kenny, I know you're working on an addiction medicine series that people need to look out for, right?
5: Yes, we are very excited um, to be working on the Curbsiders Addiction Medicine miniseries. Um it should be coming out in June of 2022. And uh, it's led by Dr. Carolyn Chan, who's a longtime producer of the Curbsiders. So uh, we're excited to bring you some of that content.
3: An amazing person. Yes. And the listeners will be glad to know it's probably gonna be shorter than the normal our normal. Show.
5: <laughs> the goal is to make it bite-sized. Yes. So uh, <laughs>
3: yes. Godspeed with that. I, I am
5: very excited for that series. Well, thank you to to both of you so much for for giving us the chance and um, putting addiction medicine in the spotlight.
3: Yeah, and we plan to hang out on there from time to time, uh, just to however we can support. It's, it's which great. is not going to help with the duration, by the way. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> just, just the way. How dare you!
4: All right. So we're moving on. We're switching from opioids to alcohol now. Um, and first, I'll just have uh, Stefan introduce himself and then we'll get into the case.
2: Hi, I'm Stefan Kertes. I'm professor of medicine at University of Alabama, Birmingham and the Birmingham VA Medical Center, and I'm boarded in addiction medicine.
3: I mean, and you're like close to a, if this were SNL, you'd be close to like the five timers jacket. Yeah. I think this I is your fourth jacket. time, at least on the show. It'd be a
2: pin.
1: I'll take a pin. We've got bumper <laughs> stickers. This is the negotiation we have.
3: We, we have some stuff over there. We'll hook you up before you leave. Thank you. <laughs>
4: So we'll start. Um, We have many patients with alcohol use disorder or prior alcohol use history, and many of them find abstinence difficult to maintain. Some patients, uh, like our friend Matt, we're going with an M theme this episode, you know, um, had a history of alcohol use and withdrawal followed by a long period of sobriety in treatment. Now Matt is drinking two to three glasses of wine four days a week. He's also on a statin for his heart. So we'll start with his alcohol use now. And kind of broadly speaking, how should we be defining recovery
2: at the moment? This is an area of dispute. And uh, the paper we're going to reference in just a moment really gets to the heart of that. Normally, recovery is thought about in terms of functional improvement. So if a person has a diagnosis of alcohol use disorder, according to the DSM, five or whatever we're in now, um, the remission of the problems that they had that got them that diagnosis means it has remitted. So they don't have use despite consequences in multiple domains of their life, compulsive use and craving. And the story you've told so far is that he doesn't. Uh, The paper that uh, we recently had a chance to review actually looked at long-term outcomes from individuals who had entered treatment who had attained various levels of reduced use at three years, and then they looked at long-term 10-year outcomes. And they found there were significant contingent of people who had entered treatment, whose level of use at three years was still significant, meaning they had potentially infrequent but heavy drinking episodes once or twice a week, but otherwise were functionally improved. And on the old school of thought, uh, maybe a more of a 12-step informed perspective would say they have not achieved recovery. They are still uh, using the substance. The evidence that was put together by one group looking at a long-term follow-up from a trial was that those people at three years had that pattern, continued to have it at 10 years, meaning they're functionally better than later. But of course, that still triggered controversy about what is the definition of recovery. Uh, the way I look at that information is to not assume that uh, Matt has failed to recover, but to engage in a conversation and say, I don't need to jump to the conclusion that this is a failure situation, particularly if all of Matt's life domains are working well. That isn't to take away from people who are right now sitting in 12-step meetings, having a conversation where they're like, I drank, that is not recovery. There is a kind of um, a lay understanding of recovery. And the word recovery is not in the DSM. So part of what we're arguing about and part of why this particular paper had good evidence, but still triggered argument in the editorials, is how do we use that word? Well, the word has a lay meaning and it has a popular meaning, but it isn't in the DSM. And so that's part of what's going on in the background.
3: I, I think I may have learned this. I definitely learned it on the show. I think it was probably when we started talking with you, which is several years ago now, that... It, for somebody, depending on their life situation, um, it may not like full full on abstinence might not be realistic. And I think when you set unrealistic goals, it doesn't make you feel good. And it, it, I, I think this may be one of those areas where we're moving towards harm reduction now, where you're just like, get things the best they can. And uh, sure, if someone's still drinking on the heavier side, they still might have risk to their liver. But if it's working for their life and that's, and they're okay with it, I mean, you kind of have to meet them where they are. Uh, My whole, my whole thinking about this has changed because I was raised in a time where like you were just hearing about people abstinence was, if it wasn't abstinence, it was a failure. And I think we need to stop thinking of it at, at that way
2: anyway. Yeah, I think our medical council can, can literally focus on where are they, what's actually going on in their lives. And the epidemiologic data shows that there's a large percentage of Americans who qualified for the diagnosis of alcohol use disorder in their 20s or early 30s mm-hmm. who don't later because they took on life responsibilities. But yes, they still drink. That all said, I am going to be asking questions like, what does this mean to you? What is the impact on you and your family? Uh, is, you know, I'm listening for a problem, but I'm not assuming that there's one. I have certainly worked in hospital situations where we have patients with cirrhosis and typically uh, alcoholic hepatitis. And the question has arisen whether they could be considered for liver transplant because they have a high risk of death. And the statement was typically made, well, if they have not achieved abstinence for six months, they cannot be considered for transplant. And that's what I've seen typically. At Johns Hopkins, they reported that after multidisciplinary evaluation and a clear evidence that the individual was planning to commit to abstinence, they just did a retrospective comparison of the people who they did early transplant with versus regular timing. And the outcomes in terms of survival of the patient and survival of the liver were about the same. Uh, this isn't to say that they transplanted every person who had a very severe drinking problem and who could not commit to stopping drinking. That's not what they did. But with a multidisciplinary assessment and a decision, they found that their early transplant patients did okay. And a lot of these folks did have severe alcoholic hepatitis. This is a paper reported in JAMA Surgery if people want to take a look. Yeah.
3: And this kind of goes with that point we were just discussing, the definition of recovery where our, maybe our fears or whatever we're bringing to this assessment is, is not, has not, did not bear out in that case. Like we're just assuming cause they've only, they've had less than six months in recovery that they're going to fail, but that, that actually wasn't the case. So that's why it's good. It's good to have research out there, right, Paul? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> All right. What's next, Nora?
4: All right. We're going on to the, the so-called potpourri right
0: now.
3: <laughs> this was good. I appreciate it. Yeah, it I like, know. It felt Great. a little bit like Jeopardy. Yeah.
0: <laughs> That's what we were going for. <laughs> <laughs> We'd love to have an introduction. Yeah. So my name is Ximena Lavander. I am an assistant professor at Oregon Health and Science University in Portland, Oregon. And I'm board certified in addiction medicine. And I do a mixture of clinical work in the inpatient addiction consult service, an addiction complex pain clinic, and also at a low barrier buprenorphine clinic.
4: Awesome. Well, let's jump into it. We've got Mary here. She's 34. She has anxiety and depression. She endorses using methamphetamines as well, two to four times per week. She says she's tried to be to quit before by going cold turkey on it, but she's always come back to it. What are what? Uh, first of all, um, what is the fourth wave? That's a term that I learned today. Yes. Let's start with that.
0: Yeah. So. Um- Listeners may have heard of the uh, three waves of the opioid overdose epidemic. And now we're seeing what's being sort of called the fourth wave, which is an increase in psychostimulant-involved overdose which have increased dramatically um, since 2013, um, in particular in the last couple of years. I know very little about psychostimulants. Maybe I'm
3: missing it, or maybe it's just the areas I've lived. There hasn't been as much that hasn't been. It's mostly been opioids and alcohol what are, are they what are they dying of is it also overdoses or is it is it like cardiac complications of the psychostimulants that i don't know
0: yeah so um there's sort of two groups that are having the overdose deaths. and I think there are people who are using psychostimulants in combination with opioids or the psychostimulants are contaminated with opioids and they're overdosing. We've seen that in see. New York City with people using cocaine that's been um, contaminated with fentanyl. But there are, I think also people who are dying independently of using opioids to use psychostimulants. And I think in those cases that is more of people who are what's called overamping on the psychostimulants taking too much. It causes cardiac complications and strokes, particularly. Thank you for clarifying that. I didn't know. I did not know that. And then, actually,
1: to Matt's point, are there particular communities that have a higher prevalence of psychostimulant use that we should be particularly mindful of as we're thinking about this?
0: Yeah. So, the um, American Indian and Alaska Native community has been particularly hard hit with psychostimulants, and they actually have the highest rate of use of psychostimulants and the highest rate of overdose deaths. Um, There are certain populations that tend to use um, stimulants more than others. We see it a lot in the MSM population. Um, and we can talk a little bit about Mary who has anxiety and depression. Women tend to use um, particularly methamphetamine for treatment of their mood disorders. So the fact that she has anxiety and depression is, um, we see that a lot in women. Interesting. And do you see, and I'm,
1: and I'm sorry, but I know we want to move on the case, but I, it just, cause I feel like I don't know much about this. Do you see this often comorbid with other substance use disorders? Like, I feel like I've never really seen this in isolation, but that might just be because of sort of where I practice. Usually I see this along with, typically opioid use disorder is where I see the the psychosimulant disorder. Is that typically the case or is that just my sort of limited frame?
0: Yeah, so there are people who use methamphetamines alone. Um, Where I practice in Oregon, though, most people I feel like you're using both, um, opioids and methamphetamines. There's been interesting research sort of looking at how people use um, methamphetamines and opioids. And there tends to be this population where they use methamphetamine in the morning that get up and go and do their work and do their job. And then they use opioids in the evening to go to sleep and relax. So if you think about a person who uses coffee first thing in the morning to get themselves going and going to work, and then in the evening they have a beer or two or glass of wine to relax and go to bed. So I think it's a way to kind of reframe how we think about our own substances and how other people use substances and how we get the privilege of our well, substances being legal and other patients, um, their substances are not legal.
3: Nora's looking very guilty for the audience. I, I don't know. She's actually blushing. Yeah. <laughs> I've had too many cups of coffee. Hey, her flight Her flight got in at a very unacceptable hour. So that you you can do whatever you want these yeah. few days, Nora. I'm giving you a guilt-free pass. Thank to you. Whatever coffee, <laughs> whatever else you need. You don't need his permission, by the way. No, <laughs>
4: so back to Mary for a moment. Um, what treatment options do we have for her with her methadone? methamphetamine use disorder?
0: Yeah, so there have been um, two treatment trials that have recently come out that have shown some benefit um, for methamphetamine disorder. The first one, which came out earlier by um, Coffin et al, looked at mirtazapine in MSM and um, transgender women who have sex with men. And that should benefit... um, in terms of reduction of methamphetamine use, very specific population. And then there was another trial that came out in 2021 by Trevetti et al. in New England Journal of Medicine, looking at a combination trial of a high dose, uh, bupropion, 450 milligrams daily, and then getting trexone intramuscular injection every three weeks, People who are familiar with naltrexone? Naltrexone is usually administered every four weeks. Uh, it's FDA approved for both alcohol use disorder and for opioid use disorder. The thought behind the every three weeks is that naltrexone does have this tail that starts to drop off at around 21 days. And so they wanted to keep patients at 380 milligrams and didn't want to have that taper, really wanted to keep them at that high dose. Are you
3: already implementing this in your practice? Are you seeing psychostimulant use a lot in, in Oregon?
0: So yes, Oregon has uh, probably one of the highest rates of uh, methamphetamine use in the country. And so we've been seeing it um, for quite some time. Actually, there's more overdose deaths related to methamphetamine than to opioids. Um, so uh, they're causing a lot of problems. In terms of what I'm doing in my current clinical practice, i um, Because I see so much co occurring methamphetamine use with opioid disorder, and it's very difficult to get patients who have opioid disorder to get them onto naltrexone, I'm really not using naltrexone very often. In um, patients who are using, naltre- using methamphetamine alone, I think it's worth considering the issue is that naltrexone intramuscular is very expensive, um, and getting it covered by insurance is more difficult. I learned at this conference that the VA does cover naltrexone for methamphetamine use disorder, so wouldn't Less. it be great if we had a single-payer healthcare system <laughs> that uh, covered uh, naltrexone? That's amazing
1: is anyone looking at the, cause the oral formulations, like I feel like and you may not know the answer to this. Maybe they can't achieve the doses there. There's like the branded um, combination oral bupropion naltrexone that's used for as a weight loss medication. Are you aware of any studies that are using that or is that not, they're looking at the doses that we need?
0: Yeah. So the combination medication um, for weight loss It's interesting. I actually was talking recently with a fellow about that for a patient who had um, co-occurring obesity and whether or not we, and methamphetamine use and whether or not it could be used. The issue is that the dose for that combination is quite low and it's like sort of an unusual dose combination. So I don't like medications that are combinations. I prefer to be able to individually escalate them. Now in terms of oral naltrexone, you really can't get the same like dose level that you want. And very rarely do I get patients who have, I don't think I've ever had a patient with opioid disorder on naltrexone oral, they always end up on that intramuscular version. I see.
3: Yeah. So it's just not practical. Even if you went to the hundred of naltrexone a day or, or yeah, naltrexone a day, hundred, that wouldn't, uh, that, that wouldn't achieve what you're
1: going for. And you okay. probably have a miserable intolerance on top of it too. Yeah.
0: Are you using mirtazapine? This is not sort of evidence-based, but sort of in my own clinical practice, how I would probably handle Mary's case, particularly because she has co-occurring anxiety and depression, I would probably offer her bupropion um, because it is an antidepressant. So I could be helping to sort of treat the anxiety and depression, and particularly because women I've seen use methamphetamine for self-medication of their mood disorder. So if I can help treat that, maybe I can help with the methamphetamine use disorder. I sort of think of patients who are they using methamphetamine to help them get up and go in the morning if they are bupropion because it's a stimulatory antidepressant might be helpful. Mirtazapine. I am using for some patients who really tell me that when they go through methamphetamine withdrawal they have really poor sleep quality. So you think when people are coming down off of methamphetamines that they would sleep a lot but what actually is happening they're having really poor quality sleep and sleep architecture and that actually is a trigger to We use bethamphetamine, and so I think in those patients, I find mirtazapine to be helpful.
1: Is that used at lower doses than like the seven and a half milligrams? Because I feel like I remember vaguely that's the one that's probably best for sleep, and it's sort of the more you crank up the dose, the.
0: I usually start people at fifteen, and then have gone up to thirty if people also have co-occurring depression.
3: You're right, Paul. It's the seven and a half and the fifteen. Are they somehow paradoxically they hit the? hist antihistamine receptors more they're more sedating.
1: That all sounds vaguely familiar.
3: Yeah. <laughs> the sleep receptors. It's been a long time. Yeah. A long time. <laughs> yeah. This episode is brought to you by Blue Land. And curbsiders, you know I'm a big fan of Blue Land, and I've said it before, I've converted the cleaning products in my household to Blue Land because I believe in the mission which is let's use less plastic and Blue Land lets you make your cleaning plastic free because You buy a bottle once, and then you fill it forever. It's super easy, their products are great, they smell great, and we really like them. Here's what you do. You fill a bottle with warm water, you pop in one of the hand soap or spray cleaner tablets, and within minutes you have a powerful cleaning product that smells incredible. Scents like Iris Agave and Lavender Eucalyptus. And if you're thinking of trying Blue Land, maybe try their Clean Essentials Kit if you want to try a bunch of different things. Or you can check out their hand soap, their plastic-free laundry and dishwasher tablets, and back by popular demand, their toilet cleaner tablet. I could tell you, I've said it before, my son smelled this toilet cleaner. Every time we use it, he's like, what is it? The bathroom smells amazing right now. So check it out. It's an effervescent toilet cleaner tablet. Not sure why I'm so excited about that, but it's cool. Right now, you can get 20% off your first order when you go to blueland.com slash curb. That's 20% off your order of any Blueland products at blueland.com slash curb. Blueland.com slash curb. Well, uh, I know we have a bunch more to get to, so let's, let's keep moving through. This was what well, we... Fortunately, uh, Kenny, as we've already established, we'll we'll, have some more (laughs) on psychostimulants coming out in the future, which is sorely needed, I think.
4: Yeah, definitely. Um, So we'll next move to e-cigarettes. How should we be advising our patients about using e-cigarettes for uh, smoking cessation?
0: Yeah, so patients have been asking me my thoughts on e-cigarettes for quite some time. And if you look at what's being done um, outside of the US, they kind of look at us that we're, Being very strict in our use of e-cigarettes, there was a lot of use of e-cigarettes as a harm reduction tool in other countries. So there's a recent study that came out in the UK, because in the UK they're using e-cigarettes more, and they looked at, it was a randomized controlled trial of e-cigarettes versus nicotine replacement therapy. And what's interesting about this trial is that it didn't have any behavioral intervention for smoking cessation. So we talk. There's smoking cessation counseling is one intervention that people can do. Yeah, I think
3: almost every trial I've seen always has some sort of usual care arm that is some sort of behavioral thing.
0: Exactly, and so this was a trial that was sort of redone. They, the same group back in 2019 published a RCT. Um, in New England Journal of Medicine that looked at e-cigarettes and nicotine replacement therapy with this usual care of more like intensive mm-hmm. smoking cessation counseling. And so they wanted to see how well did e-cigarettes do without that. And um, what they found is that e-cigarettes um, did result in a significant reduction um, of smoking at six months, um, both reduction and cessation. The one caveat to that is similar to the New England Journal of Medicine study, yeah. People keep using the e-cigarettes at six months. They're still using them at a very high rate. And so I just sort of counsel patients that if they're really trying to use e-cigarettes as a smoking cessation tool, that they should think about, do they also then want to also stop vaping and how to think about tapering down off? That's where the refillable um, e-cigarette cartridges can be really helpful because they can better titrate how much nicotine is in the cartridges.
3: Yeah. I I remember we covered that on hotcakes way back when, Paul, it was like 80% of patients were still using the e-cigarettes at a year. And, and then, but I mean, in, in our current model of addiction, like we're using for opioids, like if, if you're replacing with a less harmful version of the substance, is it still a win? And I think maybe this is the case. We just people are still just, they don't want to like retrospectively be like, oh yeah, we put all the people on e-cigarettes and then we find out that there's some like horrible condition that they're going to get way down the line. I think.
1: Well, I feel like there was in some studies that have shown it's fairly common for a turn to tobacco use as well, sort of longer out too, which I I don't know how that sort of factors into it. So it's the, the e-cigarettes thing. I yeah. still. Like people
3: also using combustible agents with the e-cigarettes. I think that's part of the concern. Like it's just now they're just using that. Now that's just <laughs> part of their <laughs> repertoire,
1: <laughs> which is the <laughs> worst like, possible.
3: Choice. Yeah. I vape when I can't smoke right? I smoke what I could smoke. That's
0: the other piece that was also um, important in this study is that they allowed people to choose whatever sort of flavor of the um, nicotine liquid that they wanted. And people Very much preferred the uh, like sort of fruit flavored um, liquid, which the FDA currently is not looking to approve because there are concerns around youth use of vaping by starting off by using the fruit flavored. So I think about, you know, adults like fruit flavored things too, you know, and so um, by sort of causing that restriction, we may be limiting who may want to use e-cigarettes.
3: Paul likes the cotton candy flavor. Sure. Label.
1: Yeah, no, it's hard to pick a favorite. I mean, watermelon's very nice. Creme it's, brulee. Yeah, sure.
3: What's
4: the cost of the fruit flavored uh, refills? Do you know?
0: I do not know. The study does go into some detail about how um, they paid for the nicotine mm-hmm. replacement therapy versus the e-cigarettes. And they, because nicotine replacement therapy is less expensive in the UK, they gave people a certificate to help pay for... The initial like pen and the cartridges. Um, and, but it still ended up being more expensive. Interesting.
3: Okay. Are we, is any more in the potpourri section, Nora, or are we moving on to advocacy?
4: Well, I think the only thing that's also worth mentioning and is coming up in the hep C episode, um, well, is- actually it
3: is coming up in real time, but in the ah, time the amazing. audience is hearing this, they will have already heard on our hep C episode. So we're
4: in between right now, Um, uh, just uh, the point that that the episode will make in spades, which is that uh, just because someone injects drugs does not mean that that we shouldn't be treating them for hep C. And in fact, we should be. Um,
6: So but uh, from that, we'll we'll have our last guest uh, introduce herself. I'm Kat Mullins. I'm currently an addiction fellow at Montefiore, where I completed my internal medicine residency training, and um, pretty soon I'll be an assistant professor at NYU Langone in Brooklyn. Awesome! Welcome, welcome.
4: So, last but definitely not least. Important topic here is is advocacy today, um, and you guys did a wonderful job of covering this uh, in your your update. So, with all of our patients, but especially our patients with substance use disorders, there are both disparities in diagnosis and treatment um, to address, and as and not to mention advocacy opportunities to participate in. Um, so, first off, uh, you covered a little bit about this in the talk, but. For our listeners who weren't there, what are the latest data on uh, disparities in uh, overdose rate?
6: So firstly, the group that has the highest rate of overdose is American Indian and Alaska Native individuals. Um, Secondly, the rates have recently surpassed for black individuals versus white individuals. So the last time that that was the case was 1999, but then it happened again in 2019. And since 2015, the rates of overdose have tripled for black men in particular. So this has always been a racial justice issue, but now increasingly it's it's urgent to consider it this way and create targeted interventions.
4: Are there any thoughts on the reason for that change in the last like five, 10
2: years? In a community like mine, at least the on-the-ground speculation is that a meaningful contingent of African Americans were used to using stimulants and that the stimulant supply itself then became more complicated, including the presence of logs. I have not seen clear-cut substantiation that that is a pattern in national data.
0: There was an article in the Washington Post that came out talking about Black men who had been using heroin for a very long time, and they interviewed them, and they talk about how they knew what they were taking and they had, but now every time they use it's this risk that's going to be contaminated with fentanyl. Yeah. And I think that that might be playing a role as well Is that we had people who had been using heroin since the 1960s and seventies knew how much they needed to stay well. And now we have this toxic drug supply coming in um, that is impacting people who aren't used to it. They didn't start using drugs in the toxic drug supply. And so they're not aware of um, how to protect themselves. Um, And I think this is really relevant to clinical practice because when you have somebody with opioid use
6: disorder and you're trying to understand and work with them on what works for them in terms of treatment, understanding the structure of how methadone in particular is regulated in the country is really pertinent to them being able to link to care and then be retained in care. So firstly, when we talk about the racial disparities, methadone is more available to Black Americans than buprenorphine is. And that's multifactorial, but buprenorphine prescribers tend to be located more frequently in predominantly white neighborhoods. Um, And if you think about the history of that, buprenorphine really is delivered from a primary care setting. People only need to go in maybe once every two weeks, once every month. Um, It's not stigmatized in the same way that a very visible methadone clinic is. Do you think the DEA announcement at the end
4: of March is going to change this at all? Kind of where... uh, I don't know if it's methadone and buprenorphine or both can be dispensed for slightly longer from the ED.
6: So buprenorphine, there used to be a requirement by the DEA that there was an in-person visit prior to um, induction. But with the pandemic, that changed. So for the first time, people were able to have a telehealth visit initially and um, from there link up with the provider and continue buprenorphine. It's not clear how long that will be the case for, but when we look at the geographic disparities and where buprenorphine prescribers are located, um, that's, that's probably really going to affect access in a positive way. And then when it comes to methadone, the major change that happened around the time of COVID is that in March of 2020, SAMHSA, which is the organization that oversees the methadone clinics, to reduce the risk of people contracting virus, having to go into clinic every day. They said that people can now take home more bottles. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of variation between clinics and how that actually worked. But Kind of at the highest level, it's now up to the clinician. If somebody is demonstrating clinical stability in whatever way the clinician determines, then that person can likely have more take-home bottles. So that's really the case for up to two weeks, maybe up to four weeks of treatment. That was just um, extended, but it's not clear how long that provision is going to go on for. And I'll mention, for people who need to travel potentially hours a day to their methadone clinic, because there's also a dearth in many areas, um, that really makes a difference in being able to retain people. And retention has been one of the challenges here.
1: Can I ask this a little off topic from what we were just talking about, but something else that you talked about and the discussion that I found fascinating is the sort of decay in the amount of active uh, buprenorphine prescriptions by prescribers. Like I, that was just completely counterintuitive and surprising to me. But it, a lot of people who are waiver just sort of run out of patients that they're treating. Like I just I don't even understand how that's happening. Can you tell me a little bit more about that?
6: Yeah. And I mean, it's, it's crazy to start with. We had this waiver to prescribe this medicine that is probably safer than all of the full agonist opioids that people in general practice are prescribing. Um, so that already limits the number of people who can get this medication. Um, but, but what this study was showing was that, um, basically the authors looked at 42,000 prescribers over a six year period and they broke them into buckets. So in the really, you know, the high volume group, people continued to treat 40 patients a month, but that was only maybe 1% or 2% of the people who were prescribing. And then in the second bucket, um, maybe they were treating 15 a month, and that was only 9% of that whole group. But the vast majority of people were only treating maybe five people, um, and then by the end that decade, most people were actually not prescribing buprenorphine for any patients in a month.
3: Yeah, I wonder if they were looking at both inpatient and outpatient, and some of these were just hospitalists writing a Mm -hmm. bridging script or something, and and that was causing the low numbers. I'm, I'm not sure. But it 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 sort of just doesn't make sense that it, as you just mentioned, that it's hard for people to, they they see the X waiver as a barrier, even though now you just have to file, file a notice of intent. You don't have to do the the long training for it. I, I don't know. Paul, you're going to say something.
1: You know, I mean, always. But I, I was just thinking in terms of, I know in my own experience, it's very hard to, I wonder if this isn't accounting for a lot of primary care doctors who are trying to treat their own patients. And I will say, It's challenging to do both in one visit like i think it's so much easier to have all right this is my addiction medicine session these Mm -hmm. patients come in i prescribe the medications we talk about that you know they can be 15-minute visits they're easy but try to do it all in primary care becomes really challenging and i wonder if we're not seeing that reflected in primary care doctors who just unfortunately don't have the bandwidth to do both but I, i don't know for sure
6: yeah, I, th- I think it's hard. And then in in methadone clinics, one benefit is that people really get this close follow-up. They're generally linked with a counselor. And again, there's so much individual variation from clinic to clinic, but with buprenorphine, really, you don't have that kind of, especially in a busy primary care clinic, you don't have that benefit. So even if you want to have somebody come back every two weeks, I don't think that's always realistic.
3: I want to start to wrap up here with as far as this goes, but I, I think part of the vision should be that like Addiction medicine is a core skill that internists should have and should plan to have. Unfortunately, Paul and I learned it on air in the past four <laughs> years, starting with our, our journey with Stefan here. Um, and and now Paul is, is doing weekly uh, prescribing and all sorts of cool stuff in primary care. And I think more people need to do that. And they need to see more people like yourselves who are doing that. And that's why, I mean, at SGM, it's easy to say this and everyone's on board. Hopefully the audience listening will be inspired by some of what y'all are saying. And this advocacy piece is we need to make it easier. You, you, like uh, Utibe, Essie, and Paul said, the you got to make the right choice, the easy choice on this podcast. And I think that is what we have to do with addiction medicine. You just got to make it easy like it, people it should it should be opt out only or something <laughs> well
4: you guys made that night, that exciting announcement at the beginning of the session which
5: yeah I so mean, I'm glad yeah. you brought this up because um for all of the medical educators out there the ACGME um, is going to now require as of July 2022 that um, all internal medicine programs um, have to have didactic and clinical experiences in addiction medicine. Um, and if we look at kind of the current state of the you know training landscape, most programs aren't providing clinical addiction medicine um, experiences. And it's mostly because they just don't have the faculty who are trained to do it. So we need the faculty, and also all these programs are now going to be required to do it. So we have to figure out a way to do it. <laughs> We're about to see some wild enthusiasm in the GME setting, which is great.
6: Yeah.
3: Any cat? Any before you hand it over?
6: Um, yeah, I think just thinking about clinics building out their capacity to manage mm-hmm. this. I think another really interesting area right now is um, the idea of peer navigation, and um, you know, if, if there's if you can get other support staff to help and just follow up and call people and make sure that they're doing okay.
3: It's a really good point. Any final comments, uh, parting words from anyone on our panel here? This has been just fantastic. Uh, You all gave a great talk at SGIB And then uh, now, fortunately, lots of people are going to to hear it on the podcast here, too.
2: I don't know if this makes the hard choice the easy choice. But some of what moves medicine is when there's a credentialing requirement for hospitals and medical centers. So if, for example, a major credentialing entity were to say to all hospitals in America that they must have the capacity to quickly bridge people with opioid use disorder to buprenorphine, they would probably find a way to do it. That will become an easier choice if certain incentives are put in place.
1: This has been another episode of the Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. Yummy! Great. Get your show notes at Curbsiders.com. And while you're there, sign up for our mailing list to get our weekly show notes in your inbox. Plus, twice each month, you'll get our new Curbsiders Digest, recapping the latest practice-changing articles, guidelines, and news in internal medicine. We're
3: committed to high-value, practice-changing knowledge. And to do that, we want your feedback. So please subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts. We're now on Spotify. You can also contact us at thecurbsiders at gmail.com. A reminder that this and most episodes are available for free CME credit for all healthcare professionals through VCU Health at curbsiders.vcuhealth.org. I wanted to give a special thanks to our writer and producer for this episode, Dr. Nora Plout Toronto. This episode was produced in part with production support by the team at Podpaste. Elizabeth Proto runs our social media. Stuart Brigham composed our theme music, and Paul With all that, until next time, I've been Dr. Matthew Frank Watto,
1: And as always, I remain Dr. Paul Nelson-Williams. Thank you and goodbye.